My all-time favorite television show, obviously, is The Andy Griffith Show. One of my favorite characters off that show is Gomer Pyle. And one of the things I loved about Gomer is that he loved surprises. In fact, one of his oft-repeated lines was what? Surprise, surprise, surprise. Good, I'm glad you knew that. <laughs> and you know, when I think about that, that's something Jesus and Gomer had in common. Jesus loved to surprise people. In fact, Jesus' way of saying, surprise, 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 was to tell a parable, and in that parable, to hit his listeners with a very surprising element. So I'm going to read a parable today. I hope you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to start reading with verse 1, and I want you to carefully listen to the place where Jesus says what Gomer said. Surprise, surprise, surprise. So here we go. For the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in the vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the very same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those, who came, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Verse 1 clues us in to the purpose of the story. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is telling the story to teach what the kingdom of heaven is like. We read in the Gospels about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and, and, and those terms are used 
interchangeably and mean virtually the same thing. The kingdom of God refers not so much as a place as to God's power or God's reign. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Jesus Christ entered history. His kingdom is expanding as the gospel is preached today and one day Jesus will return and his kingdom will be established upon this earth and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 1 also introduces us to the main characters of the story. There is a landowner, a wealthy man who owned a vineyard and there are hired men, day laborers, who were the poorest of the poor in that day and time. They were not landowners. They only earned enough each day to buy what they needed for themselves and their families for that day. And the setting of the story is basically two places, the vineyard and the marketplace. The vineyard was very common in that day and time, all the people were familiar with vineyards. It was a mainstay of the economy and of the life of that day. And the marketplace was a central place in cities. Often near the city gate, it was a, a hub of activity of buying and selling and trading and hanging out and visiting and hiring employers who were looking for laborers came to the marketplace and laborers who were looking for work hung out in the marketplace waiting to be hired. And when we're told in this scripture that they were standing in the marketplace doing nothing, they weren't being called lazy. That was simply a way of saying they were unemployed and they were standing there looking for work. There are basically three scenes in the story that we can focus on. Scene one takes place in verses one through seven when the landowner hires the workers. There are five groups of workers hired. They're hired in three-hour intervals throughout the workday, and the workday is 12 hours long, from sunup to sundown, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Obviously, this was before the days of unions and labor laws. Group one was hired early in the morning at 6 a.m., and they were promised a denarius for their work. That was a day's wage in the day and time. Group two was hired the third hour at 9 a.m. And the landowner say, said, I'll pay you whatever is right. The implication is that he's going to pay them in proportion to the number of hours that they have worked. Group three was hired the sixth hour at 12 o'clock noon. And group four was hired the ninth hour at 3 p.m. And we're told the landowner did the very same thing. He made the same agreement that he had made with those hired earlier that he would pay them in proportion to the time that they worked. But then we come to group five. It's the 11th hour. That's 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time. There's no mention of pay. He just hires them and sends them out into his vineyard to work. Now, that's just a little bit surprising, what we see of this hiring practice. It's not really the big surprise, surprise, surprise of the parable, but it's a little surprise, surprise, surprise. Because don't you think that a landowner probably had enough sense to know how many workers he needed at the beginning of the day? There seems to be an indication 
that he was hiring because there were men that needed work and he was being generous, giving them an opportunity to work. And he entered into a conversation with those hired at the 11th hour and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing, that is waiting to be hired? And, and their response was, well, nobody has hired us. And there seems to be an implication there that these are the workers nobody else wanted. They had been picked over. They were the rejects. But this landowner was willing to hire them. So we get a hint, maybe here at this point, to the landowner's generosity. Hiring maybe more than he needed and hiring those that were really, maybe, in the eyes of many, unworthy of hire. But then there's scene two. Scene two is in verses 8 through 10. When the landowner, with his foreman, pays the workers. It says, when evening came, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. That was in accordance with Old Testament law. The Old Testament law says that those who had hired workers couldn't hold their pay the next day to get them to come back because those workers needed the money to buy food that day for their families or early the next morning. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came. The 11th hour workers now. How long had they worked? One hour. And how much did they receive? A denarius. They received a full day's pay for working for one hour. If Gomer had been the landowner, he would have introduced that payment saying, surprise, 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 you're getting a whole day's pay, even though you've worked only one hour. And they probably might have responded with, shazam, <laughs> or golly. So when those who were hired first, when were they hired? 6 a.m., those hired first, 6 a.m., how long did they work? All day, 12 hours. How much did they get? A denarius. What did they expect? More. More. They were thinking, wow, this is our lucky day. If those guys who just uh, worked an hour got a whole day's wage, just think how much we're going to get. But they were surprised just as those who had worked only one hour were surprised. The landowner said, you get a full day's pay, just as we had agreed. The point of the story is the generosity of the landowner. Those hired men, he was surprisingly generous. He hired men who needed to support their families. He may have hired more than he really needed. He may have hired the least deserving, the least qualified to work. He gave them all an opportunity to work, and he paid them all, some far, far more than they deserved. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like this landowner. Just as the landowner was surprisingly generous to all of his workers, including the least deserving, 
So God is surprisingly generous to all of us, even those of us who are the least deserving. And you know, the generosity of God is on display at Christmas like no other time of the year. God is surprisingly generous to all people, even undeserving nobodies, and we get hints of that as we read the Christmas story, that he came for the least deserving. He was a king, but he was not born into status, wealth, or privilege. His earthly parents were common people, unknown He was born in a barn among stinky animals. His bed was a feed trough. He was exiled in a foreign land in fear, his parents fearing for his life. He grew up in Nowheresville. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No earthly possessions. He never married. He hung out with the nobodies of the day. Fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, sick folks, lepers, rejects, outcasts, the unclean, the sinners, the undeserving. The least deserving are front and center in the Christmas story and in the ministry of Jesus that followed his birth. And the generosity of Jesus is on display I love a phrase found in Matthew 2, 23, 22 and 23, and it was in one of the songs that we sang this morning. Matthew wrote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There is no more surprising act of generosity ever performed than the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us, as John put it in chapter 1:14. Philippians 2 focuses on it so well. It says, Jesus was God, and as God, Jesus poured himself out. He made himself nothing. He became a nobody. As God, he gave up all of his rights and privileges as God. He did not hold on to them or grasp them for his personal gain. And he became fully man to live among us while remaining fully God. And as a man, Jesus humbled himself. And he just didn't humble himself. He became a slave. And he just didn't become a slave. He was an obedient slave. And he was so obedient that it led to his death. And not just any kind of death. It led to death on the cross. The most shameful kind of death man has ever died. And on the cross... He became sin for us. 
He suffered the punishment for our sin. He took that punishment upon himself. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He poured out his spirit upon us. He gave us a new nature. He gave us his righteousness and a whole new identity as his children. And he promised us a home in heaven. Does it get any more generous, folks? Does it get any more generous than that? That the God who created us and all that is would empty himself, pour himself out for you and for me. And that's made available to all of us. Every one of us who follow Jesus no matter race, skin color, nationality, language, ethnic origin, or religious background, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, powerful and powerless, sinners, self-righteous and religious, addicts, idolaters, adulterers, gluttons, broken, abused, battered, undeserving, unworthy, undesirable, dirty, outcast and unclean. Jesus did it for the least deserving. He became a nobody in order to bring the, God's generosity to nobodies like you and me. Over Thanksgiving, my wife and I were in Mason, Texas, in the hill country west of here. Walking around the square, I saw a bumper sticker that said, everybody is somebody in Lukenbach. I thought, now that's good theology somewhere, I'm sure. And I thought to myself, what if I did go down to Lukenbach and hang out with Waylon and Willie and the boys? For a little while, I might feel like a somebody. But after I got home and it all wore off, I'd feel very much like a nobody. It's only in Jesus Christ that we have significance. And it's only because he became a nobody for you and me that we are able to be a somebody because of him. How great is the generosity of the Father to you and me. Have you received the gift offered, the generous, the surprisingly generous gift of God offered at Jesus Christ and displayed for us to see? Jesus gave himself for you and me. And our response is to receive that gift by faith. And this story, this surprise that we hear today calls you to open your heart to Jesus if you haven't already done so. And then there's a third scene. You know, Jesus could have stopped the story at the end of scene two. It would have been kind of nice if he had said, yeah, the people who worked for one hour, they got their pay and they were happy. The people who worked all day got their pay and they were happy and they lived happily ever after end of story. But he didn't do that. And I don't really like scene three because it brings up and points out attitudes in me that aren't consistent with the generosity God has extended to me in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You notice that those who were hired first 
and worked all day and received what was promised them began to grumble against the landowner. They said, these guys have only worked one hour. We've worked all day in the heat of the day and borne the brunt of the labor, and they got the same amount that we got. They didn't have a very good attitude. Gomer was also known to say, terrible, terrible, terrible. That's what they were thinking. This is, we got the raw end of the deal here, Jesus. You owe us more. But he answered them. So it's, I jumped to Jesus there. I'm stop trying to stay with the landowner here just for a little while. So the landowner's talking. He said, friend, I'm not being on, unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? The obvious answer is yes. He said, then take your pay and go. The landowner spoke. He's speaking to one of those who were hired early in the morning and had worked all day. He was speaking to one of them as representative of the group. And he said, my friend, he was being gentle with them. And he said, I'm not being unfair to you. I'm giving you the amount that you agreed to work for. And if they had stopped to think about it, they were really better off than they had been at the beginning of the day. At the beginning of the day, they were unemployed with no money to feed their families, and now they've worked all day, and because they were hired by the landowner, they've received a day's wage, and they have something to go take and feed themselves and their families. And he went on to say, I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? He said, I want to give. I paid those hired last the same as I paid you out of my desire to be generous. Don't I have the right to do that? The focus here is on the will of the landowner and his prerogative. And then he asked them a pointed question, the question that I wish we're not here. He said, are you, or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious? Literally, is your eye evil is the expression of the day. That worker hired first could not be thankful and rejoice over the good fortune of those hired last because he was blinded by his self-centered envy. He begrudged the generosity of the landowner. So the last will be first and the first will be last, indicating the order in the parable in which the workers were paid. It does not imply unequal reward, but reminds us that those hired first and those hired last are treated equally. The landowner was generous to all. So what does this scene say to us about God's generosity to the undeserving? We have no question, no ground. We have no ground to question how God treats those who are undeserving. It's his will and his prerogative, and we can't stand in judgment of that. It tells us that God is sovereign, and he has the freedom to choose to bless whom he will, how he will. And it tells us that God is always just and fair with his people, even though his ways may not seem just and fair by human standards and human reasoning. Those who were hired first compared themselves, those who were hired first, 
and worked all day, compared themselves to those who were hired last, and came to the conclusion, we've been shortchanged. Hate to tell you this, but in my Christian walk, there have been times when I felt that God has shortchanged me. I really fought intensely with that when I moved here in 1985. I'd been a pastor, two different churches. I resigned in complete discouragement. Moved here, became a member of this church. I was around a lot of very successful people who at least appeared to me to be tremendously blessed by God. And I was struggling to put food on the table to feed my family. Felt like a failure career-wise. I felt like my life was washed up. And I compared myself to the people around me. And I said to God, God, I don't understand here. I answered the call to ministry. I went to seminary, prepared myself to be a pastor. I've pastored two churches. I've sacrificed, my family's sacrificed. I think you owe me more. I struggled with that. I remember the intensity of the struggle one day sitting in a life group class. We were down at Main Street at the time. The church was located there. There was a guy sitting beside me who had all the earmarks of success just written all over him, and I'm sitting there feeling like the biggest failure in the world right beside him. Had on a fan fancy suit. I knew what he drove up and parked in the parking lot. Probably cost more than the house I was living in. He, lit, he moved to pick up his Bible, and his suit came up, his suit sleeve, and there was a watch there that probably cost more than my car. And I said, Lord, this isn't fair. This is not fair. You owe me. It was a terrible place to be. <laughs> I wouldn't be standing here today if he hadn't kept beating me over to the head to get my attention and teach me some lessons. And he said to me, David, I'm generous to all. Stop and look what you have in my son, Jesus Christ. Lessons I've learned. I cannot earn or deserve God's generosity. All that I am, everything I have, all that I ever hope to accomplish is a gift from him. And the only appropriate response is gratitude. God owes me nothing if I come to believe he does, I'm full of pride, unbelief, and a works-to-earn-it mentality. I must be careful not to measure my worth by what I've done or what I've sacrificed, if anything. God is infinitely generous and gracious and will always give me more and better than I deserve. And even though I don't deserve God's generosity, I can do nothing to disqualify myself and remove myself from the scope of his generosity. It does not matter what I've done. It does not matter how great my sin is. It does not matter how undeserving I feel. 
His generosity is available for me to receive as a gift available to all. None are disqualified who reach out by faith and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God is generous to me as he wills from his perspective. He is just and fair by his standards. And his generosity calls me out of comparison with others. I always dig myself in a hole if I compare myself with others. Whether I'm comparing financially and possessions-wise, whether I'm comparing spiritual gifts. Man, I wish I had the spiritual gift he or she did. Whether I'm comparing leadership abilities. I've never liked the kind of leader I am. You know, I've always wanted to be a different kind of leader. Whether I compare personal strengths, whatever it is. The moment I start comparison, the moment I fly in the face of God's generosity given in Jesus Christ. And then one more lesson. God's generosity is enough. It's adequate. He never leaves me shortchanged or lacking even if God was, even if he were more generous to somebody else and I could prove that, I have no reason to complain because he gives me so much more than I can ever deserve. When I compare, when I look at his generosity, I need to compare it to what I deserve, not compare it to other people. And God's generosity motivates me, motivates all of us to serve, to give. We are a people who are growing to love God, love people, and help others do the same. The generosity of God calls us to love Him, motivates us to love Him and give ourselves in service to Him. The generosity of God frees us to love others, to love each other as a church family, and to love those who need Jesus. The generosity of God motivates us to help others follow Jesus and do His will. Surprise, surprise, surprise. God's generosity. God is surprisingly generous. To all of us, even the least deserving.